Preface and Chapter One of Eminent Victorians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espyot. Eminent Victorians by Lytton Strachey. Preface and Chapter One. The history of the Victorian age will never be written. We know too much about it for ignorance is the first requisite of the historian. Ignorance, which simplifies and clarifies, which selects and omits, with a placid perfection unattainable by the highest art. Concerning the age which has just passed, our fathers and our grandfathers have poured forth and accumulated so vast a quantity of information that the industry of Aranca would be submerged by it, and the perspicacity of a gibbon would quail before it. It is not by the direct method of a scrupulous narration that the explorer of the past can hope to depict that singular epoch. If he is wise, he will adopt a subtler strategy. He will attack his subject in unexpected places. He will fall upon the flank or the rear he will shoot a sudden, revealing searchlight into obscure recesses, hitherto undivined. He will row out over that great ocean of material, and lower down into it, here and there, a little bucket, which will bring up to the light of day some characteristic specimen, from those far depths, to be examined with a careful curiosity." Guided by these considerations, I have written the ensuing studies. I have attempted, through the medium of biography, to present some Victorian visions to the modern eye. They are, in one sense, haphazard visions. That is to say, my choice of subjects has been determined by no desire to construct a system or to prove a theory, but by simple motives of convenience and of art. It has been my purpose to illustrate rather than to explain. It would have been futile to hope to tell even a précis of the truth about the Victorian age, for the shortest précis must fill innumerable volumes. But in the lives of an ecclesiastic and educational authority, a woman of action and a man of adventure, I have sought to examine and elucidate certain fragments of the truth which took my fancy and lay to my hand. I hope, however, that the following pages may prove to be of interest from the strictly biographical no less than from the historical point of view. Human beings are too important to be treated as mere symptoms of the past. They have a value which is independent of any temporal processes, which is eternal, and must be felt for its own sake. The art of biography seems to have fallen on evil times in England. We have had, it is true, a few masterpieces, but we never had, like the French, a great biographical tradition. We have had no Fontenelles and Condorcets, with their incomparable éloge, compressing into a few shining pages the manifold existences of men. With us, the most delicate and humane of all the branches of the art of writing has been relegated to the journeyman of letters. We do not reflect that it is perhaps as difficult to write a good life as to live one. Those two fat volumes, with which it is our custom to commemorate the dead, 
who does not know them, with their ill-digested masses of material, their slipshod style, their tone of tedious panegyric, their lamentable lack of selection, of detachment, of design. They are as familiar as the cortege of the undertaker, and wear the same air of slow, funereal barbarism. One is tempted to suppose, of some of them, that they were composed by that functionary as the final item of his job. The studies in this book are indebted, in more ways than one, to such works, works which certainly deserve the name of standard biographies, for they have provided me not only with much indispensable information, but with something even more precious, an example. How many lessons are to be learnt from them? But it is hardly necessary to particularize. To preserve, for instance, a becoming brevity, a brevity which excludes everything that is redundant and nothing that is significant, that surely is the first duty of the biographer. The second, no less surely, is to maintain his own freedom of spirit. It is not his business to be complimentary. It is his business to lay bare the facts of the case as he understands them. That is what I have aimed at in this book, to lay bare the facts of some cases as I understand them, dispassionately, impartially, and without ulterior intentions. To quote the words of a master, Je n'impose rien, je ne propose rien, j'expose. Lytton Strachey Cardinal Manning Henry Edward Manning was born in 1807 and died in 1892. His life was extraordinary in many ways, but its interest for the modern inquirer depends mainly upon two considerations, the light which his career throws upon the spirit of his age and the psychological problems suggested by his inner history. He belonged to that class of eminent ecclesiastics, and it is by no means a small class, who have been distinguished less for saintliness and learning than for practical ability. Had he lived in the Middle Ages, he would certainly have been neither a Francis nor an Aquinas, but he might have been an innocent. As it was, born in the England of the nineteenth century, growing up in the very seed-time of modern progress, coming to maturity with the first onrush of liberalism, and living long enough to witness the victories of science and democracy, he yet, by a strange concatenation of circumstances, seemed almost to revive in his own person that long line of diplomatic and administrative clerics which, one would have thought, had come to an end with Cardinal Wolsey. In Manning, so it appeared, the Middle Ages lived again. The tall, gaunt figure, with the face of smiling asceticism, the robes and the beretta, as it passed in triumph from high mass at the oratory to philanthropic gatherings at Exeter Hall, from strike committees at the docks, to Mayfair drawing-rooms, where fashionable ladies knelt to the prince of the church, certainly bore witness to a singular condition of affairs. What had happened? Had a dominating character imposed itself upon a hostile environment? Or was the nineteenth century, after all, not so hostile? 
was there something in it, scientific and progressive as it was, which went out to welcome the representative of an ancient tradition and uncompromising faith? Had it, perhaps, a place in its heart for such as Manning, a soft place, one might almost say? Or, on the other hand, was it he who had been supple and yielding, he who had won by art what he would never have won by force, and who managed, so to speak, to be one of the leaders of the procession less through merit than through a superior faculty for gliding adroitly to the front rank? And, in any case, by what odd chances, what shifts and struggles, what combination of circumstance and character had this old man come to be where he was? Such questions are easier to ask than to answer, but it may be instructive, and even amusing, to look a little more closely into the complexities of so curious a story. CHAPTER I Undoubtedly, what is most obviously striking in the history of Manning's career is the persistent strength of his innate characteristics. Through all the changes of his fortunes, the powerful spirit of the man worked on undismayed. It was as if the fates had laid a wager that they would daunt him, and in the end they lost their bet. His father was a rich West India merchant, a governor of the Bank of England, a member of Parliament, who drove into town every day from his country seat in a coach and four, and was content with nothing short of a bishop for the christening of his children. Little Henry, like the rest, had his bishop, but he was obliged to wait for him, for as long as eighteen months. In those days, and even a generation later, as Keeble bears witness, there was a great laxity in regard to the early baptism of children. The delay has been noted by Manning's biographer as the first stumbling-block in the spiritual life of the future cardinal, but he surmounted it with success. His father was more careful in other ways. His refinement and delicacy of mind were such, wrote Manning long afterwards, that I never heard out of his mouth a word which might not have been spoken in the presence of the most pure and sensitive, except, he adds, on one occasion. He was then forced by others to repeat a negro story which, though free from all evil de sexu, was indelicate. He did it with great resistance. His example gave me a hatred of all such talk. The family lived in an atmosphere of evangelical piety. One day the little boy came in from the farmyard, and his mother asked him whether he had seen the peacock. I said yes, and the nurse said no, and my mother made me kneel down and beg God to forgive me for not speaking the truth. At the age of four the child was told by a cousin of the age of six that God had a book in which he wrote down everything we did wrong. This so terrified me for days that I remember being found by my mother sitting under a kind of writing-table in great fear. I never forgot this at any time in my life, the cardinal tells us, and it has been a great grace to me. When he was nine years old he devoured the apocalypse, and I never all through my life forgot the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone. 
That verse has kept with me like an audible voice through all my life, and through worlds of danger in my youth. At Harrow the worlds of danger were already around him, but yet he listened to the audible voice. At school and college I never failed to say my prayers, so far as memory serves me, even for a day. And he underwent another religious experience. He read Paley's evidences. I took in the whole argument, wrote Manning, when he was over seventy, and I thank God that nothing has ever shaken it. Yet on the whole he led the unspiritual life of an ordinary schoolboy. We have glimpses of him as a handsome lad, playing cricket, or strutting about in tasseled Hessian top-boots, and on one occasion at least he gave proof of a certain dexterity of conduct which deserved to be remembered. He went out of bounds, and a master, riding by and seeing him on the other side of a field, tied his horse to a gate and ran after him. The astute youth outran the master, fetched a circle, reached the gate, jumped on to the horse's back, and rode off. For this he was very properly chastised, but of what use was chastisement? No whipping, however severe, could have eradicated from little Henry's mind a quality at least as firmly planted in it as his fear of hell and his belief in the arguments of Paley. It had been his father's wish that Manning should go into the church, but the thought disgusted him, and when he reached Oxford, his tastes, his ambitions, his successes at the Union, all seemed to mark him out for a political career. He was a year junior to Samuel Wilberforce, and a year senior to Gladstone. In those days the Union was the recruiting ground for young politicians. Ministers came down from London to listen to the debates, and a few years later the Duke of Newcastle gave Gladstone a pocket-borough on the strength of his speech at the Union against the Reform Bill. To those three young men, indeed, the whole world lay open. Were they not rich, well-connected, and endowed with an infinite capacity for making speeches? The event justified the highest expectations of their friends for the least distinguished of the three died a bishop. The only danger lay in another direction. "'Watch, my dear Samuel,' wrote the elder Wilberforce to his son, "'watch with jealousy whether you find yourself unduly solicitous about acquitting yourself, whether you are too much chagrined when you fail, or are puffed up by your success.' Undue solicitude about popular estimation is a weakness against which all real Christians must guard with the most jealous watchfulness. The more you can retain the impression of your being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses of the invisible world, to use the scripture phrase, the more you will be armed against this besetting sin. But suddenly it seemed as if such a warning could, after all, have very little relevance to Manning, for, on his leaving Oxford, the brimming cup was dashed from his lips. He was already beginning to dream of himself in the House of Commons, the solitary advocate of some great cause whose triumph was to be eventually brought about by his extraordinary efforts, when his father was declared a bankrupt, and all his hopes of a political career came to an end forever. 
It was at this time that Manning became intimate with a pious lady, the sister of one of his college friends, whom he used to describe as his spiritual mother. He made her his confidant, and one day, as they walked together in the shrubbery, he revealed the bitterness of the disappointment into which his father's failure had plunged him. She tried to cheer him, and then she added that there were higher aims open to him which he had not considered. "'What do you mean?' he asked. "'The kingdom of heaven,' she answered. "'Heavenly ambitions are not closed against you.' The young man listened, was silent, and said at last that he did not know but she was right. She suggested reading the Bible together, and they accordingly did so during the whole of that vacation, every morning after breakfast. Yet, in spite of these devotional exercises, and in spite of a voluminous correspondence on religious subjects with his spiritual mother, Manning still continued to indulge in secular hopes. He entered the colonial office as a supernumerary clerk, and it was only when the offer of a Merton Fellowship seemed to depend upon his taking orders that his heavenly ambitions began to assume a definite shape. Just then he fell in love with Miss DeFell, whose father would have nothing to say to a young man without prospects, and forbade him the house. It was only too true. What were the prospects of a supernumerary clerk in the colonial office? Manning went to Oxford and took orders. He was elected to the Merton Fellowship, and obtained through the influence of the Wilberforces a curacy in Sussex. At the last moment he almost drew back. I think the whole step has been too precipitate, he wrote to his brother-in-law. I have rather allowed the insistence of my friends, and the allurements of an agreeable curacy in many respects, to get the better of my sober judgment. His vast ambitions, his dream of public service, of honors, and of power, was all this to end in a little country curacy, agreeable in many respects? But there was nothing for it. The deed was done, and the fates had apparently succeeded very effectively in getting rid of Manning. All he could do was to make the best of a bad business. Accordingly, in the first place, he decided that he had received a call from God, ad veritatem et ad sepsum. And, in the second, forgetting Mr. Fell, he married his rector's daughter. Within a few months the rector died, and Manning stepped into his shoes. At least it could be said that the shoes were not uncomfortable. For the next seven years he fulfilled the functions of a country clergyman. He was energetic and devout, he was polite and handsome, his fame grew in the diocese. At last he began to be spoken of as the probable successor to the old archdeacon of Chichester. When Mrs. Manning prematurely died, he was at first inconsolable, but he found relief in the distraction of redoubled work. How could he have guessed that one day he would come to number that loss among God's special mercies? Yet so it was to be. In after years, the memory of his wife seemed to be blotted from his mind. He never spoke of her. Every letter, every record of his married life he destroyed, and when word was sent to him that her grave was falling into ruin, it is best so, the cardinal answered. Let it be. 
time effaces all things. But when the grave was yet fresh, the young rector would sit beside it day after day writing his sermons. End of chapter 1